you would, turn with me one final time to the book of 2 Thessalonians as we come to the final chapter, uh, chapter 3. It has been a joy for me as uh, your pastor to, as letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians over the past several weeks, all of scripture is relevant to our day. In a couple of weeks, we'll return to Genesis. Genesis is, is just as relevant in our day as it was when it was written. But these two books in particular have a special message for us as the church in this day, in this world that we live in, in the midst of uncertainty and chaos and confusion to rest in the goodness of Jesus as we look with great anticipation to his return, to know that if we are in Christ, we will be kept to the end. That is our hope in life and death, dear friends. And so I'm so thankful uh, for our time in these two letters. And, and it makes me excited to preach this chapter today. I'm also a little sad uh, to leave these books behind because they have been so good to me and to us as a church. If you would begin uh, following along with me there in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without pay, paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us in these moments to sit well under your word? Lord, help us to listen well. Help us to apply well the inspired word of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
Lord, would you remove distractions from this place that we would be changed by the power of your word before us and the spirit of God within us. And Lord, if there's someone in this place today who has never repented and turned to you in faith, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Work in our midst, we pray. And it's in your son's holy name we pray this. Amen. In these closing remarks here in Paul's final letter to the church in Thessalonica, we see that the Lord is faithful to establish and guard his people. And the church in Thessalonica has been a visible, tangible testimony of this truth. We see the faithfulness of the Lord to establish and guard the people of the church in Thessalonica. And as Paul comes to the end of this letter, he addresses them as brothers. As we read through this chapter, you probably heard that word used several times. Of all of the epistles, of all of Paul's letters, it's in these two letters that he uses the word brother the most. And we're reminded of the affection and the love and the care for the, that he has for these particular people. And he comes to them with a command right away in verse 1 where he says, Brothers, pray for us. Um, he commands them to do this. He did the same at the end of the first letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he said the very exact same thing. Brothers, pray for us. And the command here is a command that has with it the, the idea of an ongoing, continuous action. He doesn't just want them to pray for him once, but that they would continue to pray for him. This follows very nicely considering the verses that precede it in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 where Paul prays for them. He prays for them and then he comes to chapter, one, uh, chapter 3 verse 1 and asks them to do the same. Essentially saying we will and are praying for you, will you pray for us? And we were reminded here of the importance of praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. How often do you tell someone I'm going to pray for you? But you have no intention to actually do that. When we tell someone we're going to pray for them, we should commit to that. When our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church come to our mind on any given day, we should stop and pray for them. Prayer is so important to the ministry of Paul. And in this, uh, his first letter, he doesn't give them any particular request. So in the first letter, he just simply says, brothers, pray for us. But here he gives them two specific requests, two prayer requests that you see there in the text. He says, first, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And then secondly, there in verse 2, he says that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Gives them two specific things to pray for. The first one there, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. This quite literally means that the gospel would run and be glorified. Paul so often uses the imagery of the runner running the race to communicate to us about spiritual truths. We saw this in the first letter when he talked about them as his crown of boasting. And we, we talked about that wreath that is placed on the victor's head. Paul is praying that the, the gospel would run forth as a victorious athlete and accomplish the task that God has set out for it. That it will win the prize, be glorified, be honored, and that it would be accepted throughout the world as it was accepted in Thessalonica. Not as the word of human beings only, but as it is truly the word of God. And so it's very fitting then that at the end of that request, he says to them in the end of verse 1, he says, Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among 
you. He has seen and they have experienced the, the victorious gospel in their lives. The gospel has taken hold of them. It has sped forth and it has been honored there among these believers. So he prays that it would continue to do that throughout the world. The second request, though, is that he prays that, it, that they, in particular, he and the other uh, missionaries who are with him, the other apostles and disciples, would be delivered from wicked and evil men. This is really the natural outworking of the first request. The first request is that the gospel would speed forth and be victorious. The second request is that it would do so unhindered. That they would be delivered and rescued from wicked and evil men. Paul probably has some specific people in mind. Maybe even a specific situation. The church in Thessalonica might even be aware of who he is talking about here. But, but the primary importance here for us is that he labels them wicked and evil or out of place and worthless. There are those in Paul's day who stand opposed to the gospel and want to stop its spread. And we see this in the life of Paul in Acts. Every city that he goes to, there are those who rise up to oppose and stop the spread of the gospel. These type of wicked and evil people exist in our day today. Wanting to stop the spread of the gospel, to oppose the gospel. And so he asked them to pray for these two things. And these two requests are followed by a very unique phrase at the end of verse 2. You see it there for yourself. He says, for not all have faith. What does he mean by this? Well, this phrase serves to do two things. It validates the two requests that he just made, but it also points them to the encouragement, the the main thrust of chapter 3, which happens there in verse 3. And so when he says not all have faith, Paul is saying that the vast majority of the people who have heard the gospel preached through his ministry have not responded in saving faith. They have not responded in faith and repentance to the gospel. And this is powerful for the church in Thessalonica when he asks them to pray that the gospel would speed ahead and be victorious. Because there is a need to pray that the gospel would be victorious in such a way. Again, we're not just reminded to pray for one another, but we're reminded to pray for the nations and the gospel going to them. That the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, that we would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. But the phrase here doesn't just serve to validate the two requests, it also serves to encourage them. He says there at the end of verse 2, not all have faith, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. Not only do the faithless, wicked, evil ones threaten Paul's ministry, but they threaten the church in Thessalonica as they threaten the church in our day. And so Paul uses the word faith in a word play to help encourage them. So in verse 2 he says, pray for us to be rescued from evil because not everyone has faith. But in verse 3, he encourages them with this same word, faith, the adjective form of it, and the word faithful by saying to them, the Lord is faithful, he will guard you from what? Evil. And so both of these uses of the word faith in verse 2 and verse 3 are there to make a contrast to us. Paul is saying, dear brothers and sisters, there are those who are faithful who stand against you and your God. But God is faithful. He's encouraging them. 
What is God faithful to do? Well, he tells us there. God is faithful to establish and guard you against the evil one. This driving theme throughout both of these letters. If you are in Christ, you will be kept to the end. He will establish you in the gospel and he will guard you against the evil one. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And verse 4 reemphasizes this truth. Paul says that we have confidence in the Lord about you. What is his confidence? Well, his confidence is that you are and will do the things that we command. So he sees the Lord working in their lives, and the evidence of that is the fruit of the gospel. Christ Jesus has taken hold of these people, but he also finds confidence in the fact that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He says you will continue to bear fruit. You will continue to grow in obedience to your master. So in these first four verses, Paul encourages them with this glorious truth. The Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, the letter doesn't end there. We still have verses 6 through 18 or verse 5 through 18 to get through. And so this encouragement that he starts with is meant to serve Two exhortations that he gives them in verses 16 through 15, but also three prayers of blessing that he gives them in verses 5, 16, and 18. So I want us to spend the rest of our time considering these two exhortations and the blessings. So there's two primary exhortations that Paul gives them here. The first one is this, do not be idle. We see this primarily in verses 6 through 12. And he starts this exhortation by telling them to keep away from those who are idle. Keep away from or avoid those or any brother who is walking in idleness. Keeping away and avoiding people doesn't sound very Christian. Sound like a very Christian thing to do? Are we supposed to avoid people in the church? What is Paul saying? Well, he says something similar later that we'll look at in verse 14, where he talks of those who are not obeying when he says, have nothing to do with them. Again, that sounds harsh. Is that really a Christian teaching? To keep a distance from some? Well, what Paul is saying here is to keep a distance from those who are rebelling against Paul's teaching and the elders' teachings of the church, which are ultimately the teachings of Christ. There are those in the church in Thessalonica who are not living in obedience to the commands of Christ. Notice what he says there. He says, keep away from any brother. He's not talking about people of the world. He's talking about people who are in the fold of the church to keep away from them, to have nothing to do with them. And so at the surface level, this sounds harsh, but at the heart, Paul is teaching us something really important here about church discipline. Now, in a moment, when we get to verses 13 and 14, we're going to unpack a little bit more what church discipline means. But here I want us to consider just the power of what he says here when he says to keep away from any brother. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this in the individualistic culture in which we live in. Let's be honest. There are people who come to church on any given Sunday who love the idea of people keeping away from them, right? Some of us come to church and we want to sit on the back and we want to sneak out right after the service is over because we want to avoid the people. In Paul's day, in the church in Thessalonica's day, this was not the case. You could not be individualistic in this day. You would not survive. 
You needed community. And so for these brothers and sisters in Christ who pledged their allegiance to Jesus, they had been ostracized and kicked out of their community. They were completely dependent on the church for each other. So to be shunned in such a way was not meant to harm the brother or sister in Christ, but rather to correct them. They needed the church. The church was essential to them. They're still members of the church. They're not the evil, wicked ones that Paul mentions earlier. They are brothers in Christ. So this is not just a harsh treatment. This is simply saying, if you are to be an active part of this covenant community, you cannot go on living in unrepented sin and rebellion against Christ. And he says to them, they are not in accord, verse 6, with the tradition that you received from us. They are wayward. They are wandering. He calls the teachings here that he gives them tradition because he was trained by the disciples and sent out as a missionary. They would have talked about church discipline and how it's to unfold and its importance. And so, in other words, Paul is just simply saying this. This is what is clearly expected of you if you are to be a part of the bride of Christ. He then, though, under this exhortation to not be idle, turns the attention to the example that he and Silas and Timothy set for them. He says there, you know how you ought to imitate us. Well, what is the example that they set for them? We already know what the example is because he told us about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember? He said, we came to you and suffered on your behalf. We had boldness in the midst of persecution to declare the gospel. We spoke not to please men, but to please God. We spoke not with flattery or, or, or seeking after man's praise. We were gentle among you. We were affectionate among you. We shared ourselves with you. We labored and toiled night and day on your behalf, Thessalonica. We were holy, righteous, and blameless. He emphasizes some of those same things here in these verses. He says here that, that they were not idle. So you have those in the church who are idle. He says, look to the example that we set because we were not idle. We did not take advantage of your generosity. We didn't eat of your bread and, and not pay for it. We toiled night and day. You were not burdened by us. And although we had the right as apostles to do so, we were, we were caring for you. We did not make demands of you. The same thing that he mentioned in the first letter in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, rather, we set an example for you to imitate. What is the example? The example, they said, is the complete opposite of the idleness that's happening in the church. So he says, look to us. Finally, though, in regards to this exhortation to not be idle, he looks back to where they've been and what they've already talked about and addressed. In verse 10, when, uh, he says, when we were with you, we said, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is something that they addressed in person. When he was with them the first time. It's something they addressed in the first letter. And here he comes with the second letter and he's got to, he has to address it again. And so he, report, he, he points to a report there in verse 11 that there, there's still word of this idleness happening. He says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Again, Thessalonica has a busybody problem. Paul's already addressed this in person in his first letter and so he reiterates in verse 12, what is the expectation? Verse 12, such persons we command. So if you are in idleness, here is what you need to do. We command you, encourage you in the Lord Jesus to do your own work quietly and earn your own living. If you remember earlier in 1 Thessalonians when we talked about the idleness problem, we touched on these two things, work quietly, earn their own living. Don't be a busybody. 
Mind your own affairs. Stay in your lane. Don't take advantage of the church's generosity. And so Paul points that to their attention again. The second exhortation, though, is do not grow weary. And we see this in verses 13 through 15. So the first exhortation flowing out of the truth of verse 3, the Lord is faithful, is do not be idle. But then in verse 13, he says, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary in doing good. Doing good means keeping the commands of Christ. Keeping the commands that had come to them by the apostles and the elders of the church there with the authority of Christ. Notice how many times the idea of commands and obedience is mentioned just in chapter 3. Verse 6, he says, now we command you. Verse 12, now such persons we command. In verse 10, he spoke about when they were with them before, we would give you this command. Verse 6, not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So they're not walking in obedience to the commands of Christ. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say. So the heart of the matter here is obedience to Christ. It's not just about the idleness. The idleness is a specific issue that this church is facing that Paul addresses in particular. But the heart of the application of verses 6 through 15 is this. In all of the Christian life, we are to strive for obedience to Christ in everything. So he says, do not grow weary in your obedience to your master. That word weary means to become discouraged or give up or to lose heart. If we're honest in the Christian life, there are seasons where we find ourselves tired. And we find ourselves in a season of life where we say, what is the point? Why why am I following after Jesus in such a way? What's the point? And Paul reminds them and he reminds us that it is good and right to desire and strive for obedience. He says, don't stop. Regardless of what you face in this life, be faithful to Christ and your obedience. But notice what he says in verse 14. If there is, are some of you who are growing weary and are walking in sin with no remorse, he says, then church discipline needs to happen. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Again, that doesn't sound very Christian. Are we, are we shaming people in the church? No. I told you earlier we'd address church discipline again here. We see a, a clearer picture of what that is. So let's, let's unpack that for just a moment. What is, what is he talking about here? Well, first he says, take note of that person. He is definitely not saying that we need to have sin police in the church who keep a running list of all the sinners. If we had such a list in this church, each and every one of our names would be on that list, myself included. The church is not a place for perfect people. The church is a hospital for wretched sinners who have been changed by the power of the blood of the Christ. That's it. And so this is not a a, a blame game or a finger pointing. The heart of the issue here is that there are some who are living in rebellion against Christ. Open, blatant sin, and there's no heart of contrition, there's no repentance, there's no remorse. They need to be corrected. So when he says there, take note of, again, not a running list of the sinners, but rather this speaks to the intentionality we must take as the church and the purposefulness 
that we must take as the church if someone is living in rebellion to look to restore them through God's means of church discipline according to his word. And so this one that he says have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed is walking in unrepentant sin and has no desire to change his or her ways and repent. Now, the goal of church discipline is not to kick them to the curb. Look at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a what? A brother. The goal of discipline is restoration through biblical correction. No one in Thessalonica is perfect. No one in this church is perfect. But when someone can no longer admit that they have sin, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and prove to be a liar. If there's no remorse, no repentance from blatant, open, ongoing sin, they must be corrected. And the way in which Christ ordains for this to happen is church discipline. Now, let's come back to the main point of these verses. In light of the two exhortations, do not be idle, do not grow weary, and then there's some application of how that plays out for those who are are, are not obeying the commands in church discipline. What is the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is this. Obedience is imperative for the bride of Christ. The church must be about obedience to Jesus. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 97. If you were here on Wednesday night at our Wednesday night prayer service, we looked at Psalm 97. And I want you to hear what verse 10 says. It's a very simple phrase, but so profound and so true in light of what we're talking about here. Psalm 97 verse 10 says this, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. In other words, if you love the Lord, you will hate evil. You cannot love the Lord and love evil. You cannot love the Lord and love the ways of this world. You cannot love the Lord and love flesh. You cannot love the Lord and love your former self. And so, again, it is God who establishes and guards. Verse 3. It is the Lord who is faithful to keep his church. And the same tension that we felt at the end of 1 Thessalonians, where he said very much the same thing, it is God who keeps you. God will establish you. We see here that we still have a responsibility to obey our master. And so the charge is this. Do not grow weary, dear friend, in doing good. He is faithful. He has proved his faithfulness, and he will be faithful to the end. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in walking in obedience to Jesus. And so for those of you who are maybe a stay-at-home mom, and you're doing that in this season of life out of obedience to Christ, You feel the pressures of the world, the the culture in which we live in kind of looks down on you and and frowns upon you. And and then you've just got the stuff that happens at home. Kids screaming, dirty laundry. Hours at a time where you're by yourself at home. Dear sister, do not grow weary in doing good. Be faithful to the call that God has placed on your life. Maybe it's in the workplace for you and you serve 
a boss who's just a terrible, wicked, evil. When, when we read about the wicked, evil people earlier, you're thinking of your boss. Maybe that's you. You despise them, and you just can't stand working for that person. But in God's providence, he's placed you in that office space for a reason, to be light in the darkness. And the pressures of those who work with you to, look, to make you look more like the world, dear friend, do not grow weary in doing good. Kids who are here today, I know school is out, so the application of school isn't very fitting, but I'm sure this summer you're going to have a chance to play with neighborhood kids or kids in extracurricular activities. And some of those kids are going to try to make you look more like the world and less like Jesus. And they're going to try to get you to dress like them and talk like them and listen to the music that they listen to and disrespect your parents like they disrespect yours. Kids, do not grow weary and do good. Jesus is worth it. Walk in obedience to him. The final thing I want us to see here, though, is the blessings that Paul prays over this church. There there are three blessings that he prays. We see one in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And then finally, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. These three prayers of blessing have four essential truths prayed for in them. The love of God, the steadfastness of Christ, peace, and grace be with you. Love, steadfastness, peace, and grace is what Paul prays over this church. And as we come to the end of this letter, I hope you realize how fitting it is that Paul prays for these four things. Because we get a sense that this is not a new prayer for Paul. That Paul has already been praying for these things on behalf of this church. And we know that because we see all of these things in the life of the church in Thessalonica. Their love, their steadfastness, their peace, and their grace. And so let's just consider for a moment where we've come. Paul leaves Philippi after great persecution and affliction. And he comes to Thessalonica and he's still faithful to preach the gospel under great persecution with boldness, and there, is people, there are people in Thessalonica who respond in faith to the gospel, and a church is planted in this city in a short amount of time. Because Paul has to leave again because of the persecution that arises, and so he becomes anxious about their welfare, and he sends Timothy to check on them because he's concerned for them. And Timothy returns with a report to say that the church in Thessalonica is thriving in their faith, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. And there's this overwhelming sense of mutual affection for one another. So Paul looks to encourage them by writing them these two short yet profound letters. And he looks to encourage them by pointing them to something that seems so strange and weird to us. He encourages them by pointing to the end times. He encourages them by pointing to the coming of Christ to say, If you are in Christ, if you are justified, you will be kept. You will be sanctified. You will become more and more like Jesus. And in the end, you will be glorified. You will be made like Christ. And so he says to them, Be faithful. Hold fast to the word. Grow more and more into Christ's likeness. And he concludes with his prayer of blessing for these four things. Love, steadfastness, peace, and grace. Consider first love. The church in Thessalonica has mastered love. 
they are an example to all churches throughout all of history of what it means in 1 John 4, 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you know how we know the church in Thessalonica is born of God and knows God? By their love. It serves as a reminder of us that if we, if we say we love God and hate our brothers, we are liars, is 1 John 4.20. If we say we know the love of Christ, but we can't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're, do we really even know the love of Christ? We're reminded, too, that we never graduate from love, that love is the chief manifestation of obedience to God. 1 John 5.2, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You want to know what it means to obey Christ? Manifests itself in love. Secondly, he prays for steadfastness. This too is, a, is an example that is set for us here by the church in Thessalonica. They are the prime example of steadfastness. Under persecution from, the, from, from the, the Jews and the Romans and others, they have held firm to the faith. And this isn't in and of themselves. It's what he says there at the end of verse 5. It's the steadfastness of Christ. We cannot muster up steadfastness in and of ourselves. It is Christ. In us, And this steadfastness not only gives testimony to the hope of the gospel, it gives evidence to their salvation. That God will keep his people to the end. And so our response is, come what may, just as we just sang, we will hold to the goodness of Jesus. Thirdly, he prays for peace. The word comfort has too been a theme throughout these two letters. And in the face of persecution and affliction and in times chaos, peace is the reality for the people of God. We are prone to look out over the landscape of our world and live in anxiousness and fear. Whether it's a Chinese battleship crossing the bow of an American ship or debt ceilings or whatever it is, we are prone to anxiousness and fear. But this book reminds us today of the comfort and peace that we have in Christ. Our hope is not here. Our peace is not here. The world will not be comfortable for those who profess allegiance to Christ. There's not hope to be found on the 5 o'clock news, dear friends. Our hope, our peace, our comfort is set in heaven with Jesus. And so we do not lose heart in the face of persecution and trials because we have a peace that surpasses all understanding and we are able to heed the command of of Paul in 1 Thessalonians to rejoice always pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances finally he prays for grace the theme of these two books is grace all that God did in the life of this church is by his grace and Paul's prayer for them is that they would continue to grow in the grace of Christ Dear friends, we are nothing apart from God's grace. Each and every day of our lives, we are dependent on and walking in the grace of God. We we deserve the fate of the evil, wicked, disobedient ones. In our sin and our rebellion against the holy God, we deserve death eternal. And yet God, in his good grace, made a way for us to find salvation, to find life eternal, to be restored back into good standing with him by the blood of the cross. And Christ lives this sinless, perfect life and dies a death he does not deserve in our place so that by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, we might receive the righteousness of Christ. God is 
is great in his grace. And it is not of ourselves. What happened here in Thessalonica was not a a cool motivational speech that Paul gave on day one. It wasn't an entry strategy and an exit strategy. It was Jesus. It was his grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so as we come to the end of these two letters, church, this is my prayer for you. That you would know the love of God, that you would know the steadfastness of Christ, that you would know the peace that surpasses all understanding, and that we would grow in the gospel each and every day of our lives. That's my prayer for you. I want to close by reading words to a hymn. quite an old hymn written in the 1500s and so some of the words are a little strange but I think this hymn is very fitting in light of all that we've talked about over the last several weeks and today and not only is my prayer for you church that we would love and and be steadfast and have the peace of God and grow in his grace this this too is my prayer for myself for my family for you and your family in this church And so just listen to the words of this hymn as we close. It says, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and savior of my heart. Who pain didst undergo for my poor sake, I pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. Thou art the king of mercy and of grace. Reigning omnipotent in every place. So come, O King, and our whole being sway. Shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Thou art the life by which alone we live. And all our substance and our strength receive. Sustain us by thy faith and by thy power. And give us strength in every trying hour. Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. Lord, give us peace and make us calm and sure that in thy strength we evermore endure. Let's pray.